I don't know about you, I love heist movies. You know a good heist movie? Uh, when I say that, I'm not talking about the kind of movie where somebody steals something. Um, that's just a robbery movie. I, I'm talking about heists. Uh, I'm talking about a movie where somebody develops an elaborate plan that comes together, a plan nobody would ever imagine or, or, or think anyone would try. Heist movies always involve somebody planning. And uh, I'm talking about the kind of movies where, where a diverse team of specialists gets put together, right? Each one of them bringing their own skills, usually one reluctantly who doesn't want to do it anymore. This is going to be their last heist, right? Heist movies have these teams. And I'm talking about the kind of movie where, oddly enough, you find yourself rooting for the thieves because you want to see their plan actually work and you want to see the team pull it off. Somehow the bad guys are the good guys. And I love heist movies, whether it's bank heists, casino heists, art heists. To me, all of that is really great fun. Um, one of my favorite strategies in a heist movie is when the thieves replace the valuable thing they're stealing with something counterfeit, a replica, an imitation of something. They steal the original and they replace it with a fake. And, and, and sometimes the heist can happen without anyone, even the authorities being aware. Well, can I tell you, that kind of heist has actually happened in real life as recently as seven years ago. Seven years ago, an antiques dealer in Turkey put together a team of 18 criminals. Most of them were forgers. One of them was a museum security guard. And over the course of four years, they stole 302 pieces of art from Turkey's State Art and Sculpture Museum. They would steal the art, then they would sell it on the black market. All right, they made over $250 million doing this split 18 ways. And, and while many of the works of art were, were stolen out of storage, get this, 46 were pieces of art that were on display that they replaced with fakes. By the way, the forgeries were so good, nobody noticed that they did this. The only reason anyone ever found out was because an anonymous tip came in and got the investigation started. It's just to say, for four years, the museum had art that looked like the real thing, and no one knew the real thing had been gone for a long time. Of course, the opposite can happen too. Uh, just a few years ago in Italy, this painting was stolen from a church, Santa Maria Maddalena Church. Uh, this painting of the crucifixion is worth millions of dollars. It was painted by Peter Bruegel the Younger in the 1600s, and this church just has it in a side alcove. Oh, if Crosswinds only had a painting worth millions of dollars hanging on the wall, on the side, like near a bathroom or something like that. Anyway, the thieves used a hammer and they smashed open the display case. They grabbed the painting. They took off in their car. But what they did not know was that the church and the Italian police had heard rumors that this heist was planned. And so they installed cameras in the church to catch the thieves in the act. And then they replaced the painting with a copy. What the thieves stole was a replica. By the way, very few people in the church noticed a replica had been in place the previous Sunday. And when they did, when they went up to the priest and they told him something was wrong, he let them in on the secret and they kept the secret, which is pretty good. Well, these sp specific types of heists, the kind where something gets replaced, something along those lines, that has everything to do with what we want to talk to you about today and in this series we're starting. We believe that a great heist has happened with our faith. That when it comes to the faith that we all try to embrace and we all try to live out as Jesus followers, someone has snuck in and replaced it with a forgery, has given you a forgery. 
You and I have been given a version of our faith that looks so close to the real thing, we don't know the difference. And yet, the real thing is worth everything and the counterfeit, nothing. In fact, I would even say what may have started as an original in our lives, somebody snuck in and replaced it with something fake. And perhaps many of us, all of us, have been living with a replica for many years and nobody told us. And the reason that we're doing this series, The Great Heist, is because we want to help you notice some forgeries that maybe you've fallen for that you are living and discover the real thing that's been hidden all along. And then we want to help you live out the real thing that Jesus has for you. This series is, is seven weeks. Each week, we're going to look at a different forgery together, even try to see why it's so easy to fall for it. And then we're going to show you the real thing as we see it in Scripture. And here's our hope, that you will listen and you will assess the degree to which maybe someone has swapped out God's intention of a life that you can have with him for something else. Now, as we get started today, what I want to look at with you is the entire concept of what life with God or a relationship with God is all about. Even as we put that up on the screen, I'm sure you're familiar with that concept. We talk about it enough. Uh, You've heard about having a personal relationship with God, with Jesus. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. All right, the forgery I want to look at with you today relates to this concept. I believe God has something very specific in mind when he communicated that he wanted a relationship with you, but somebody has swapped that thing out for something else. Let me read you the passage we're going to spend some time in, and then uh, I'll explain uh, what in the world I'm I'm talking about, all right? The passage is in Hebrews. It's actually chapter 5, starts in verse 11, and what I'll tell you is in this passage, the writer of Hebrews is actually writing to Christians who are under persecution, for accepting Jesus as their savior. And and they're considering leaving behind this new thing, following Jesus and going back to Judaism. And so the writer says this in verse 11. There's much we have to say about this matter, but it is hard to explain to you because you're so slow to understand. There's been enough time for you to be teachers, yet you still need somebody to teach you the first lessons of God's message. Instead of eating solid food, you still have to drink Milk. Oh, burn. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a child without any experience in the matter of right and wrong. Solid food, on the other hand, is for adults who through practice are able to distinguish between good and evil. Now, we're going to dive a little deeper into this bit uh, later, but I just want to make sure that you see these two concepts here. We're going to use them to help us understand the forgery. Milk and solid food, child and adult. The writer seems to be saying, you should have gone from milk to solid food, from being a child to being an adult. Now, hang that painting somewhere in the side alcove of your brain, okay? Let's go back to talking about our relationships with God. Um, I grew up in church. Uh, Relationship language about me and God, it was used all the time. I knew from an early age God wanted a relationship with me. And I figured out I wanted one with God. And in church, my youth leaders or my pastors would ask about my relationship with God, as they should. That's what we're here for. And there was a phrase or a question that I must have heard a thousand times wanting to helpfully know how God and I were doing. I'm going to put this up on the screen. Some of you will recognize it because you have been asked this too. You ready? 
How's your walk? How's your walk? Now, for those of you uninitiated to that language, how's your walk meant how's your walk with God? Inevitably, I would sit down with a youth pastor or a leader. One of the first questions they'd ask is they would try to figure out where my relationship with God was, see what was going on. They would go, how's your walk? Later, as I felt called to become a pastor and I would, I would sit down with other pastors, um, sometimes other pastors who were my bosses, sometimes ones who were my peers, and, and the goal was to sharpen each other or hold each other accountable, whatever it was. And, and the question would get asked, it would kick off every conversation. How's your walk? Um, by the way, you think it's awkward when you sit down with your boss to do like a performance evaluation? Imagine what that's like for pastors who in the same meeting have to do a job performance evaluation and a spiritual performance evaluation. But the way that you would ask somebody how they were doing in their relationship with God, their spiritual life was, how's your walk? How's your walk with God? Now, that question is so generic and it's so broad. And for me, when somebody asked it, it meant a bunch of different things. It meant, have I been to church lately? How, how much am I reading my Bible lately? Did I pray today or have what's called a quiet time? Did I tithe this paycheck? H how much am I swearing? Um, did I have any lustful thoughts recently? Who have I told about Jesus this past week who doesn't know him? When I sin, do I feel guilty about that? And is there somebody that I need to confess it to? All of those were questions. They were things I would think about when somebody would ask me, how is your walk? Did I do this? Did I do this, this? Did I do this? If so, I guess my walk is good. If not, I guess I'm not walking. But beyond all of those questions that would come into my mind was an implication to this about faith and about me and God and about our relationship. The implication is that I was on a walk with God moving from point A to point B, or rather point A to point Z. That I was on a walk with God or a journey, whatever you want to call it, and the goal of my relationship, my life with Jesus, now that I've been forgiven of my sin and received grace, the goal was to move along a path with Jesus from here to there. Now, also implied in this walk was that this walk was not a leisurely stroll around the neighborhood with God. Like, you know, you and your family have gone out and walked around during the COVID pandemic just to get out of the house. You go walk around your neighborhood, around your block. Um, no, implied in this walk was that there were waypoints or checkpoints along the way. And that the way you know where you are in your walk has to do with certain accomplishments along the way. So have you read through the Bible yet, the whole thing? Have you read every single word? Well, then you are further on your walk. Did you go on a men's retreat with your church yet? Further on your walk. Have you tried fasting? If so, how long did you not eat for? If it was one meal, maybe not so much, but a few days, okay. A few days will put you even further down the road on your walk. All right, here's one. Have you been invited to be a leader of some sort at church? Another accomplishment. It was as if the people who taught me this thought that, that something like this scene that we're about to show you actually existed in the Bible. Watch this. Come, friends, as I teach you how to grow your faith. You will be spiritually mature when you get a 30-day streak in your Bible reading app. When you attend over 100 church services, you will be a level 5 Christian. If you sin in the same way more than once, 
you will be demoted to novice follower. Volunteer in kids' ministry, and you'll get 100 heaven points. Only some of you will attain the level of professional Christian. Others of you will remain below level three. Mature followers must have Christian bumper stickers. You are only on step seven. You have been stuck at level three too long. Follow me. Now I will instruct you on reaching higher levels of spirituality. Okay, you know that that's not really in the Bible, right? Okay, the idea was that there are these waypoints or there are these like checks along the way. It's probably hundreds more that we could think of, but they are the ways that we know that our walk with God is progressing. The goal of my relationship with God is to move through the checkpoints until someday I arrive at Z, where I am holy, where I'm like God. Nobody ever really explained to me what Z was. Most people were honest enough to tell me that you don't get to Z until you get to heaven. But the point is to get as close as you possibly can as you go. Me and God, we're walking from A to Z, a very linear, step-oriented understanding, one step at a time approach to what a relationship with God is all about. All right, can I tell you, this paradigm is flawed. It's deeply flawed. I think it's a counterfeit. But can I also tell you, this counterfeit is a counterfeit we love. You know why? Because walks, step, progress, that is our jam. We love forward movement and we love growth. All right, let, let's talk about that. In our Western world, this is so congruent with how we do everything in our lives. Um, in our most formative years, you, you were taught you're supposed to go from kindergarten to first grade, and then you're supposed to go on to second grade, and so on and so forth, all the way up through 12th. And the threat given to us at any point, say like the fourth grade was, hey, if you don't perform, you're going to have to do fourth grade all over again. Did you ever hear that or, or, or worry about that at all? Which I, I think about that now in my 40s. I would give anything to go back and do fourth grade all over again. If you put me in fourth grade right now, I would kill it, you guys. I would nail it. No, but progress, progress, moving on to the next waypoint was evidence that I had accomplished something. I was doing something right, which is why we throw graduation parties, right? Look at you. You made it through the 12th grade. We're partying today, not just because your kid did 13 years of school, but because they accomplished all the things they needed to accomplish along the way. But it's not just school. It's even evident the moment that your child is born, the first few weeks or the first few months. Uh, those of you here who are, are new parents, um, you go to the pediatrician, and you know this, they weigh your baby, or they measure the length of your baby, and they tell you right away, your child is in the 80th percentile. And it's likely not because of anything you did or your child did, right? But you get so proud when they say it. And, and then when somebody asks you, hey, how's the baby? You say, oh, he's so great. He's in like the 80th percentile. Better than like 80% of the other babies. As if you and your baby have been going to the gym together, working out in the garage or something. But, but even with babies, right away we see growth language, we see progression. That's kind of our thing. We get older and we think that way with work. We want to get promotions. I am promoted to a new position and, and hopefully one after that and hopefully another one after that and, and promoted to positions that are progressively higher. I'm moving my way up the corporate ladder. Okay. The ladder is a walk. 
or a path. It's just a vertical one, right? We love the A to Z in our culture because the walk down a path, the progress down a road is proof you did something right. So is it any wonder that this metaphor of walk or of journey or of a path has found its way into our lives, our relationships with God? Can I tell you that the church, not, not just this church, but the church at large, has perpetuated this understanding. Um, I have been doing this pastor thing for over 25 years now, and, and I've done this in a number of churches. And you know what I have taught people who become Christians? What I have taught them that their new relationship with God is like? I've said it's like a baseball diamond. Great. You just received grace. You made Jesus the leader and savior of your life. You want to know your next steps, because we are steps-oriented, right? Let me introduce you to this baseball diamond, and myself and thousands of other pastors around this country would lay out, here's first base, and here's second base, and here's third, and now your relationship with God is all about touching all the bases on your way to home plate. Other churches I've been in, we, we, we hold classes, and we call them 101, 201, 301 classes, and, 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 and those are fine naming devices when you're talking about a Bible class or a theology class so you know you, you aren't getting the same content you got last time. But, but I would use it. I mean, we would use it to say, if you've been to this spot on your journey, your walk, now we're going to help you get to the next spot on your walk. Let me say, it is no wonder that you and I think of a relationship with God as a walk that's meant to be progressing. And remember what we read earlier in Hebrews, right? Milk, solid food. Child to adult, we read that, and it confirms our concept of a progressive walk or a journey or, or of steps going from A to Z, because A is milk and Z is solid food. But the thing is, that is not what this passage means. I'm going to explain what it means in a minute, but this idea that your relationship is steps that you walk, it is a forgery. And there are some serious problems when you live with this forgery. Can I just share some of them with you? In fact, you've probably felt them. One is you're given the false expectation that maybe someday in this lifetime, you will arrive. This forgery makes you think that, that if you're not at Z in your life with God by the time you have breathed your last breath, then you have failed. And, and some of you, You've been walking this walk for a long time, and, and you don't feel like you're much further down the path than you were 20 years ago or 40 years ago, and, and you've been living with some guilt over that. Like, some of you have evaluated whether or not you're succeeding in a relationship with God based on whether or not you are growing. If I'm not growing or maturing or walking down the path, then I have failed God, and I failed myself, and I failed my family, or you turn it on others. If I'm not growing, then my church has failed me. And my small group has failed me. Or my spouse has failed me. Okay, one problem with this forgery is you are only successful in your relationship with God, your, your life with him, as long as you keep moving to the next steps. Let me give you another problem with it. Um, the forgery fools us into thinking that growth is the same thing as health. See, growth or maturity and health, a healthy relationship, do not go hand in hand. Um, I have some bad news for you, Crosswinds. Uh, we have these two beautiful eucalyptus trees on either side of the bridge uh, heading back to the backside of our campus. I think we got a picture up. Yeah. Um, these trees have provided wonderful shade for us as a church, a great beauty. 
when I think of this campus, I think of those trees. Uh, I figure those trees are 100 years old. I have no idea. But they're incredibly mature trees. They have grown, right? They've grown as well as anybody ever could dream. If you look at them, you would think those are healthy trees. Well, we, we, we recently had an arborist come out and let us know that those two trees have been termite damaged. And that because of that, they're dangerous. Like, they could fall into our play space for kids, all that grass we've put down for, for people to play or sit and relax. And those trees now need to come down. I know. I heard your groans. I was so disappointed when I heard about those trees. Okay, they look perfect on the outside. Who, in the world, could somebody with such maturity or trees with maturity and stature and growth, how could those be diseased? But they are. And yes, um, we're going to plant some new trees there. It's going to be beautiful in 100 years for somebody else. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if any of you have a line on some cheap, mature trees, please <laughs> let me know, all right? But you get where I'm going with this. Growth and maturity is all about forward progress, but forward progress does not necessarily mean health. And I think because we've fallen for this walk imagery or, or growth forgery, we may have grown in our progress as a Christian, whatever that means, our accomplishments. But inside, our relationship with God may not necessarily be healthy. All right, one more problem with this forgery. It means that you and your relationship with God is all based on you and what you do. In fact, it's all based on you continuing to keep God interested. And because none of us are perfect, this leaves us defeated, doesn't it? When somebody asks you, how's your walk? Are you growing? What that does is it leaves us measuring. All right, there are problems with this forgery, my friends, but it feels right, feels right, because maturity, growth, steps, the ladder, that is our jam. And again, the biggest problem with the forgery, the original has been stolen from you. And it's possible you don't know what a relationship with God is really supposed to be like. Can I give you a better way to think about what God has in mind for you and him? Before I do, let, let me explain more of this Hebrews passage. I'll put it back up. All right? Again, speaks about going from milk to solid food. Now, no doubt, there is progression there, right? There's growth, there's maturity, but maybe it's not meant to be point A all the way to point Z. Um, did you know that ancient rabbis used to call their students sucklings? <laughs> That's a terrible name to call the people that you were trying to teach. There's no way that would ever get past HR in our schools or our churches today. But they would sometimes call them sucklings because as, as the students were there, the idea was that, that these new believers, they would just sit and take it all in, everything the rabbi could give, everything that they would teach. And the idea was, I, the rabbi, am going to give you all the milk that I can give you as a baby, and then someday you will be out there on your own eating solid food. In the ancient world, to say to a student, you are drinking milk in terms of what they were doing, understanding something, that was not a diss, because milk is where you start. Milk is where everyone starts. Uh, my brother-in-law is currently taking like a heating and air conditioning school, uh, works all day at his job, and then two nights a week, he goes home and uh, goes to class for four or five hours as soon as he has something very quick to eat, and every day for the six months he's in the school, he will be drinking milk. It is all milk, and that is nothing to be ashamed of. 
Milk is why I'm here. Rabbi, teacher, you are feeding me what I don't know. That's not a diss. That's why somebody was with a rabbi. Give me your milk. Okay, where it became a diss, and you see this in the Hebrew passage, is when somebody would say, you should be on solid food right now, but I think you need to go back to milk. Now, now notice he opens this moment by saying, by now, I thought that you would be teaching other people. I thought you'd be the ones giving milk. He's suggesting that something is wrong and they are not as grown as they thought. Hold on, time out. Milk, solid food, child, adult, that's all about maturity and progress and growth and steps. It's all about A to Z. Well, yes, it is and no, it's not. It is about going from here to here but it is not about A to Z. Let, let me explain. In our modern Western world, we have lots of things between milk and solid food, don't we? We have Gerber's, uh, we have pureed bananas, if I recall, and we have pureed carrots, and um, we give our kids pureed chicken Gerber's, which sounds terribly disgusting, but uh, now I'm not sure we would call that solid food. Most of us recognize that as something in between milk and solid food. It's a step on the walk. It's a run on the ladder. And then we have puffs. Anybody else use puffs with their kids? Loved puffs. Puffs are these little snacks that melt in a child's mouth and they stick to their fingers so they're not throwing them everywhere. They're so much better than like goldfish. Um, it is no wonder when we read a passage like this, we see a walk when we read this. We see a journey from this to this and we see many steps along the way till you get to solid food. You start at milk and then you move to something a little bit more substantial and then something else and then someday you end up at solid food. Okay, truth be told, in their world, you had milk for a very long while, and then you were on your own eating solid food. There was no Gerber stop in between. There were no puffs. I'm not saying the baby grabbed a fork and a steak knife and cut into their own filet mignon. What I'm saying is this passage was never meant to convey a life with God where you go from milk to something else to something else, and then finally, someday, you end up at Z, solid food. It was meant to say, yes, there's a short period of time in your relationship with God where you sit and you listen and you learn everything you can, and then there is the rest of your relationship with God where you go and you do and you live and you teach it to others. This passage is not about a lifetime of spiritual growth. It is saying you're supposed to go from milk to solid food, from baby to adult, the day you leave my class. Now, can I tell you why the writer thinks that these people need to go back to milk? We're going we're gonna to bring this full circle. Because they have fallen for a forgery. These people in the book of Hebrews were beginning to believe that their accomplishments are what earned them a relationship with God. And they have forgotten that it is all about grace. Which, by the way, is why the surrounding verses in the chapter are all about Jesus dying on the cross for their sins. This is why if we go back a chapter to chapter 4, the writer says this. Look at this. Let us have confidence then and approach God's throne where there is grace. There we will receive mercy and find grace to help us just when we need it. The writer says a life with God is not centered around what you do, your accomplishments, your progress. He says life with God begins and ends with grace. 
I love the throne imagery in this. Imagine for a second, God on a throne, you know, maybe even someday in heaven when you get to Z, your path A to Z, and God, if he's king on a throne, you enter this throne room with fear and with trembling, and you think, did I do enough? Did I accomplish enough? What will the king on his throne say about my journey and my walk and my progress? And the writer of Hebrews says, the throne room is filled with grace. And he says, you, whatever you're doing now, you seem to have forgotten this. Or more likely, someone stole it from you. He says right here, I'm giving you the original. You are living out a forgery. You better come back. Let me give you the real thing again. Let me give you milk again grace. This passage was never meant to get you thinking about a lifetime of spiritual steps that will mature you to a true, perfect follower of God. It was actually meant to steer you away from that understanding of a relationship with God. So with the five minutes we've got left, I want to give you a different model, a different way for you to think about your relationship with God. I think that walk has problems. I wonder if a better way to describe what God wants us to do with him is dance. See, in relationships, you don't walk somewhere together, do you? Just to keep moving from new thing to new thing, new level. You know what you do with somebody you're in a relationship with? You dance. All right, you guys, I don't dance. I have two left feet. You don't want to see me dance, I don't want to see me dance. If we ever run into each other at a wedding reception where there is dancing, I am doing you a favor by staying in my seat, okay? You're welcome. But I am using that here because dance is a great metaphor. A dance with God is a far better choice than a walk. While a walk is all about progress, like what can we accomplish in this relationship? A dance is all about enjoying each other as you move. Let me read you a passage that we never read. This is all about you, Isaiah 62. This is about you. He says, you will be like a beautiful crown for the Lord. No longer will you be called forsaken or, or your land be called the deserted wife. Your new name to God will be, God is pleased with you. Your land will be called happily married because the Lord is pleased with you and will be like a husband to your land, like a young man taking a young woman as his bride, the God who formed you will marry you as a groom is delighted with his bride, so your God will delight in you. Okay, this describes a relationship, your relationship with God, not a walk where you accomplish things on your way to the end, but a God who delights in you. You know what never happens at the end of a wedding reception? The couple climbs a ladder together while everyone watches. I don't know what better image to think of for a relationship than, than two people delighting in each other through a dance. Even the passages in the Bible that say so-and-so walked with God, if you read those closely, they're not about progress and growth. They're about togetherness. A dance isn't a walk. Yes, you're doing something with the God that you're in a relationship with, but it's not a series of waypoints, waypoints and boxes to be checked off. A dance is improvised, and it's spontaneous. If it's ballroom, you're following his lead. Dance means at the end of the dance, I may end up on the dance floor exactly where I started, but the goal wasn't to get to the other side of the dance floor. The goal was the relationship. It was us. 
in a dance. Sometimes I'm pulling away and my partner has to pull me back. Now in a walk, I'm either there walking right next to you or I'm left behind while you move on without me. But in a dance, in a dance, God is doing like the lasso dance, like roping you in and bringing you back. You can see why I don't dance. In a walk, in a walk, I'm looking to see where I am in relation to everybody else, aren't I? How am I doing in comparison? Am I slow? Am I behind? In a dance, there's no comparing. No two couples are going to dance the same dance. In a walk, I'm trying to build something to reach God. In a dance, we are creating something together. You are loved by God. He delights in you. And that does not mean you are perfect, that you don't sin. We'll talk about that next week. It does not mean that you and God have it all worked out. What it means is he is committed to you and you to him. And he is coming up to you, sitting on the side of the dance floor, you not sure if you want to get out there, not sure if you're wanted, not sure if you know the moves. And he is asking you to dance with him. And because a dance with God is not a line dance or a square dance, the kind of dance where everybody looks alike, no offense if you like that stuff, this dance with God has all the potential in the world to take you places with God that you never knew existed. It is not about growth. It's about a relationship. You are not a tree. You are his child. You are not a ladder climber. You are his beloved. And it is time what was stolen from you and replaced with a forgery gets seen The question that I'd ask you to be considering is not where you are on a line. The question is, how is your dance with God right now? When was the last time you thought about your dance with him? I'm not asking you to think about where you are on a line. That's way too simple. But how are you and God dancing together right now? What parts are working? What parts are not? This week, as you prepare to keep digging into these forgeries with us, think differently about your relationship with God. Maybe try to avoid judging yourself and evaluating yourself and scoring yourself on the benchmarks. This week, enjoy being with God and try to pay attention to what he's doing in you and out on the dance floor. All right, we are out of time. Thank you for coming today. We'll see you next week.
Some good times with good friends, making good memories. 